This is Episode 9 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. Episode 9 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we sit down with Randall B. Smith, a professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston and the author of a recent book on reading the sermons of St. Thomas Aquinas. Randy was the center's miser visiting research fellow when he started writing the volume. He is a good friend of the center and has presented several papers at our fall conference over the years. Let's head into the Maritan Library for this week's conversation. I'm here with Randall B. Smith, the Scanlon Professor of Theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas. Randall has just published a new book within the uh, from the Renewal Within Tradition series, a new series from Emmaus Academic Press, and the book is entitled Reading the Sermons of Thomas Aquinas, A Beginner's Guide, and we are delighted to have this opportunity to chat with Randall. Hi, Randy. Hi. Thank you for having me. Indeed. And you've been affiliated with the Center for Ethics and Culture for a number of years, coming up on probably a decade now. Yeah, very happily. No, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to spend time and do research and have the resources of, the tremendous resources of the libraries of Notre Dame and to have an occasion to work on projects like this. Well, that's awesome. So in the acknowledgments at the start of your book, you thank the founding director of the Center for Ethics and Culture, David Solomon, as well as the current director, Carter Sneed. Uh, how did the C- CEC help with your writing of this book? Well, I was a fellow. I was the Miser Fellow, and so my thanks to the Miser family. I was a Miser Fellow. Uh, I was selected to the Miser Fellow when David Solomon was the director, so clearly I have to thank David. Um, <laughs> but then the book was published. Uh, I worked on it in summers afterwards, and uh, the very next year Carter became the uh, director of the center, and he was very supportive as well in terms of helping me you know, move this book from a manuscript out to publication. So it really uh, straddles the two administrations, right? So um, I have to thank David because, of course, he he selected me. um, But who knows whether he would have helped me get the book published at all, right? (laughs) He might have said, well, this is terrible. And then I have to thank Carter because he helped me get the book published. But Lord knows whether he would ever selected me for the position. So anyway, I thank both of them. And it was a wonderful time at the center. And I've continued. You know, I, I come back to Notre Dame every summer. And um, spend time in the in the Maritime Center, so I always also thank the director Jean O'Callaghan there. Um, but it is simply a wonderful place and wonderful uh, set of resources and wonderful people uh, like yourself uh, who are at work there, and it's it's just a tremendous place to spend. And I'm I'm always sad when I have to go back uh, to my little Scanlon chair and just sit in the chair, the Scanlon chair. <laughs> and no, it's just a tremendous uh, time here, and they were everybody was great. Marvelous. Well, for those who may not be as familiar with you uh, as you are with St. Thomas Aquinas, maybe give us some idea of his contemporary milieu, as they say. What was his 
kind of general professional situation while he was delivering the sermons to which your book introduces us. Well, if I can uh, give a little uh, preview of the book I'm finishing right now, actually, which is kind of a sequel uh, to this book, there was some material I had to strip out of it. Um, you know, your one is always cutting out material, but I'm, I'm working on a new book uh, called Principia, uh, Thomas Aquinas' Bonaventure and the Culture of Preaching and Prologues at Paris. And to give you a sense of that, right, I mean, you're, you're talking about a culture where most people think of medieval culture, scholastic culture, as a culture of uh, disputation, disputed questions, and it is. What I wanted to point out is that uh, the thing all masters of theology at the University of Paris had to do in order to, uh, when they were masters and in order to become masters, they had to preach. And so most, many people haven't really talked about uh, that culture and the preaching of these great masters of theology. We've thought about their scholastic disputed questions, the Summa of Theology of Thomas Aquinas. But for some reason, uh, the sermon material, which again, for Thomas Aquinas, who's a member of the Order of Preachers, this is something he used to do as Dominican, and everyone as a master of theology at Paris is required to preach every year. Uh, at least once, and, uh, you know, they had to give university sermons. So this is the cultural milieu in which they live, which we haven't exactly recovered. The sermons of Thomas Aquinas were only done in a, put into a modern critical edition. That came out last year, actually. Oh, wow. So, uh, again, it's one of these strange things where you had multiple uh, editions of the Summa Theology, and rightly so. It's a very important work. But these sermons, of which, in fact, for Thomas Aquinas, there's only 19 extant sermons that we have of his, um, but I think they're a great resource in understanding uh, the culture of the time. Um, and similarly with, with Bonaventure, I didn't cover Bonaventure in this book, but we have more of Bonaventure's sermons. And they're both very, very interesting preachers. And, and it gives, again, it gives us a, uh, a view of how they would have communicated with the popular culture around them. Interesting. So for the contemporary reader, for the beginner for whom you've written your book, what is one of the biggest hurdles that they might hear um, or that they might encounter when starting to read the sermons of St. Thomas? Well, one of the, uh, I had a review of the book, which was very positive and I was very grateful, but it was very interesting. He said, it's a, called a book for beginners and he didn't think it was exactly a book for beginners. Um, and I was going to write a response in which it said, well, you remember Thomas Aquinas wrote the Summa of Theology and called it a book for beginners. <laughs> so it was in that spirit that it's, it's a book for beginners. But no, I actually have had a friend who gave it to another friend. I, I guess I would say for educated non-specialists I tried to write the book for. Um, in which case, you know, not beginners in, in the sense of people who, you know, like cheap novels and don't care about anything, but people who might be interested in, in Thomas Aquinas. And, but aren't specialists in medieval sermon material. And um, so what makes it difficult, part of the reason I, I wrote the book was precisely because it seems to me that reading these sermons is a, uh, a it requires understanding how they work, which is this. Um, it's a very different sort of sermon style. Most people might be used to sermons that uh, start with a biblical verse and then the preacher is kind of preaching on that biblical verse, or the biblical verse has kind of been, you know, sets up the topic. The way a medieval sermon works, a medieval sermon of this period, is that you have a biblical verse. The biblical verse is what's called a thema. Sometimes you'll even see it's a theme, but it doesn't exactly give the theme of the sermon. It's a mnemonic device 
that structures all the material in the sermon. So as I point out at the beginning of the, of the book, there, I use one of Thomas's sermons, that uh, sermon called Ecce Rex Tuus, Behold, your king comes to you meek. And then the rest of the verse would be, and riding on a donkey. Right. But Thomas doesn't use the last part of that. And then each word in that verse, behold, for example, keys offered Thomas four points. And then the next, your king. Of course, in Latin, king would come first. So king, in what four ways is Christ a king? And in, then what four ways is he your king? And then comes, and you know, what are the ways in which he comes? This is a, a uh, sermon for Advent. So the point is, if you think that the preacher is preaching on the verse, you find all these weird interpretations. For example, in the word behold. So Thomas finds the four different kinds of Advent, right? Christ coming at the beginning of time, Christ coming, right? Who's the word made flesh, Christ in his incarnation, Christ coming into our spirit, and Christ coming in the second coming at the end of time. He finds all these meanings in the word behold, right? Related, he associates with the word behold in a mnemonic way. I and mean, if you understand it as a mnemonic device, you think, oh, that's kind of ingenious. But if you think he's preaching on the word behold, like he's really finding all these meanings, you think, well, that's just crazy. Yeah. So it's a, it's, you have to accustom yourself. And again, once you, if you like word games and associations of this sort, after a while you start to say it's really ingenious. And it really does help as a mnemonic device. Um, but if you think he's preaching you, you, you know, on that verse, you'll say, wow, he's finding all sorts of crazy meanings in that right. verse. Is the accusation then that he's reading into the text for those who maybe aren't familiar with this method? Yeah. No, that would exactly be the, the charge. The charge is that he's, to use the technical term, he's doing eisegesis or you right. know, exegeting into the text as opposed to exegesis, getting meanings out of the text. Which, again, if, if he were preaching in the way you usually do commentary, right, a uh, sort of line-by-line commentary, which would have been common in the early patristic period. Well, then, yeah, he might clearly he would be guilty of, right. of reading meanings into the text. But again, it's um, these things work like mnemonic devices. People don't, like these memory aids. So, for example, when I was young and we were learning piano, you would learn every good boy does fine because, of course, like right. E G B D F. And there's all sorts of little memory aids like this, right? People who are very good at remembering names uh, create a story. Right, they get a name, and then you know you've seen memory people who do this sort of thing, sure. and and people in the ancient in their memory palace, yeah, memory palace, and yeah. in the ancient uh, Roman world, for example, they used to talk about in the Greek world, they used to talk about walking around the city and then associating ideas with architectural, you know, that building or sure. that tower or whatever, and that's how they would memorize. Well, this memory device isn't primarily for the speaker who's delivering the speech; it's for the listener okay. who's listening to the speech. And again, so they, most of, many of the listeners would have had the biblical verse memorized or it would have been common enough. They would remember, behold, your king comes to you meek. I don't usually have biblical verses memorized, but I remember that one actually from reading Thomas's sermon. But once, if you can bring to mind, right, in your short-term memory, the, the short verse, behold, your king comes to you meek, then you can recollect Right, being you know, like the content, the of, the content of the sermon, because people actually have stored in their long-term memory a lot more information than they know, and that again, that's why memory people with their memory palace will will oftentimes point that out. That you just need entry points, you need places where you've stored that information, and once you, as Make it were, mem- remember one piece, you can recollect a huge number of things that are attached to that. So you just have to store them in the right place and then be able to pull them out that way. And so I think this is what the medievals uh, 
we're very interested in these kinds of mnemonic memory devices. There's whole books written about that. That is quite ingenious, actually, and, yeah. and useful for us. Kind of wish I could remember the sermon from last Sunday. This right? is why the yeah no exactly. This is one of the one of the issues. But you know one of the uh, the things that's amazing about Thomas Aquinas that people noticed right is was his prodigious memory that and also that he could dictate to four scribes at once. And of course, one of the ways in which you do that is you have to remember exactly where you were in your argument, right? So you I was in uh, well, our, brother Reginald's writing. Yeah, no, and then you go over yeah. to you know brother. Thomas, Maynard, yeah, Maynard, yeah, yeah, something, and or Jodrick or something, and then you say, okay, I was at, you know, uh, objection three, response one. Anyway, and then you you have to go through, and this is what they were uh, they were amazing at, and of course, part of this was generated even earlier in medieval culture by the necessity for memorizing all the psalms. Sure. When you were when uh, a medieval monk. The, the but you, office, had to, you had to learn to read, but still a lot of the scriptures. And we, we know this from you know reading Bernard of Clairvaux and Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas. They're quoting the scriptures mostly from memory. They don't, like we do, have to go and look stuff up. But no, it's true. I can remember a tremendous amount of that sermon, Ece Rex Tuus, Behold Your King Comes, simply by remembering that. And, and I, like you, right, I, I don't usually remember sermons at all, right, right from last, like, 10 minutes after I leave the church, right? I mean, moved on. I say, yeah, <laughs> sadly, you know, they, oh, what did he say again? Anyway, it's, it's sort of tragic. So now this method is called, at the time it was called the Sermo Modernus or the modern sermon style. Isn't that ironic? It's the 13th century and they're like, well, this is very modern. That's right. right? Uh, they look back and they say, well, that ancient classical stuff from, you know, the patristic period. We're very modern. This is, anyway, yeah, you're right. The modern sermon. So in chapter five of your book, now you present St. Thomas's answer to the question, what purposes should a good sermon serve? Could you walk us through the idea? What I've tried to do is sort of defend Thomas's, and the medieval practice isn't only Thomas, you know, there's, this is the way they, they do it. And again, it seems odd, but I think a good sermon should bring us into uh, a sort of living contact with God's word. And then make that word alive in our lives, right? A living reality. And um, this is what the Sermo Moderna style was intended to do. Now, again, it's, it's going to seem odd, I think, to modern readers, which is why I wrote the book, to sort of show how it was done and, the, you know, and to hope, I hope they will then sort of learn to appreciate it, right, in the way that you kind of have to get used to Shakespeare before you really appreciate Shakespeare. When you're ninth grade or 10th grade or whenever you first start reading Shakespeare, you hear, oh, Shakespeare's so great. And then you read, you know, one of the plays and you think, wow, this is kind of weird, you know. Yeah. Same thing students oftentimes do with Homer. They're like Homer's Iliad, oh, the most boring classic ever written. But, of course, you just have to get used to the style. And once you get used to the style and you understand the artistry of the style, you can appreciate it uh, a little better. So that's what I hope happens here. But anyway, and then I hope they would read the sermons of Aquinas and start to appreciate the way in which he's trying to help his listeners um, live the gospel, right? Um, That it's not just an exposition, of the text in the way we do, right? So it's not a just a sort of historical critical, you know, okay, here's the authors of the text and here's what they might have intended. It's in many ways a kind of pastoral exhortation, right? Um, quoting lots of scripture, but really meant to be a pastoral exhortation, which again, they can remember after the sermon 
is over. And that's the key, right? Again, a great exegesis of a text, um, even something as great as, you know, Pope Benedict's Jesus of Nazareth, and you think, oh, that's really great, and oh, his, his understanding of the Beatitudes is so powerful and profound. And then you try to repeat it to somebody, and then you say to yourself, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me go back and read. You don't necessarily remember it. The medieval sermons are meant to, to help people to remember, particularly it was necessary because if you were asked to preach in the morning at Mass for a university sermon, you were required to preach that evening at Vespers in what was called a Vespers service. So, and it was also required by university regulation that you use the same Thema verse. So it was clear that you were supposed to start preaching on a topic, right? And then people would have a large break during the day. And so you had to be able to pick up sort of, right, okay, here's where I left off from the morning and then continue on. And the, the Sermo Moderna style with its sort of memory device Thema allowed you to do that very easily. Sure. You could very quickly summarize. Okay, this morning, you remember, I talked about behold your king. Now I'm going to talk about comes to you meek. And then you would start off, and there you went. So now what is the goal of your book? What, ultimately, why have you written it? What do you hope that your readers are going to do? I, I say in the, in the introduction of the book that there would be no better thing for me than uh, for people to then, uh, before they, or as they read the book, or after they've started the book, to get the sermons of Aquinas, some of which are online, but most of which are available um, through a, a wonderful translation by Father Thomas Hoagland at uh, Catholic University of America Press, and start reading the sermons. Right. So in many ways, the goal of the book was to get people to appreciate the sermons of Thomas Aquinas. Right. So uh, I say to people, look, um, if you just want to read the first chapter of the book where I go through Ecce Rex Tuus, you know, Behold Your King, and you get a sense of how this works, and then you say, oh, okay, I see it's very different and I guess I get a sense of how this works. And then you could maybe look at the analytical outline of all of the sermons, which I give at the end of the book. You could say to yourself, oh, yeah, I see how this works through all the different sermons. And then you would look at the analytical outline. You would say, boy, I really want to read Sermon 8. Okay, they're all given numbers by the, the critical edition. So you would say, ah, that's one I want to read, you know, or Number 12, I really want to go read that one. And then they would. And they would go read Thomas's sermons, and they would read them with understanding and uh, enjoy them. And, of course, for some scholars who might be looking for Thomas's views on certain things that no one's seen yet or something, they might say, wow, he talks about um, the young mendicant controversy in sermon so-and-so, right? And so let me look that up. What does he say about that? And so, that, you know, again, I hope it will help people appreciate the sermons, get more out of the sermons, and it will enter more into the scholarly literature on the one hand. But then also people who just are interested in Thomas Aquinas, which aren't just scholars, right, will start to read the sermons and, and enjoy them and appreciate them. Is this a preaching style that you think would have a place today other than just Dusty old tomes or newly published tomes from Catholic U Press. Yeah, dusty. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> um, I don't want them to be dusty. No, no right. I. That's a good question. In fact, I wrote a little article for Homiletic and Pastoral Review called um, "What We Can Learn from Thomas Aquinas." And in that article, I suggest: look, I don't think people are going to do the Sermo Modernist style, but there are certain lessons it seems to me people can learn. One is um, a: you have to prepare. Right, you don't write a sermon like this off the cuff. 
right? Uh, you have to be clever. You have to think very seriously about the topics you want to cover. Uh, B, you have to think very seriously about, well, when you use this style, what's forefront in your mind is, again, that people will remember the sermon. And again, it seems to me, as we were saying before, how often do you remember sermons that you heard, even if they're pretty good, but you oftentimes don't remember the sermon, sadly. You may remember one line or a couple lines. Yeah, and maybe the story that Father gave at the beginning about his sister and their children and the funny things they did, you know, they went on a snipe. Which in some way is the entry point, much like the incipit of of Thomas. But the question is, if that story isn't well-connected to the scriptures, then you remember the funny little story, but you don't remember the scriptures. And that would be, again, tragic, which is the third thing I say, right, C, which is to say... This is a method, I think, which is meant to not only help you remember the sermon, but really help you remember the scriptures, right? So this, the, the theme of verse was always taken from the biblical passages, the biblical readings for the day. And so I think for modern preachers, if people can't remember the moral or spiritual lesson from the sermon, then you've got a problem. A. And B, if they get through, again, like 10 minutes or 20 minutes or a half hour after the sermon, they can't remember what the scripture reading was for the day. You've also got a problem. What you really want is for them to remember the moral or spiritual lesson well, how you plotted it out. And then also, oh, and that was related to these readings. And this is the word of God coming alive in my life, right? So again, if all they remember is the story about, you know, my aunt, Millie and her stew on Sunday morning or, you know, then that's a problem. Okay. I mean, it's not so horrible to, to do that, Aunt Millie, right? But if it's not well connected to the readings and, uh, meaning the biblical readings and people just don't remember what the moral lesson was in any way, shape or form, then I think you're in trouble, right? Something has misfired. Okay. The, the means to the end has replaced the, the means has replaced the end and the end has been lost. So we might learn that from, from Thomas. And not only from Thomas, but from Bonaventure. And, and again, I think there's a whole history of preaching which we can learn from. There's a lot of different styles that can be used to really bring home the word. And I think our lack of knowledge of the history of preaching can make our contemporary preaching uh, a little thin by comparison, right? So people should read Augustine's sermons and Anselm's sermons and John Chrysostom's sermons and John Henry Newman's sermons. Again, nobody's going to do the, exactly what they did because we live in a different age. But they can give us tools and ways of thinking about preaching, which I think can be helpful. If we have a bigger toolkit, we can probably do a better job. Well, Randall B. Smith, author of Reading the Sermons of Thomas Aquinas, A Beginner's Guide. Thank you very much for chatting with us. Thank you, Ken. Thank you to Randall B. Smith. His book, Reading the Sermons of Thomas Aquinas, A Beginner's Guide, is the first volume within the Renewal Within Tradition series that is edited by another former fellow of the center, Matthew Levering. Learn more about the book and find a link to buy it in the show notes. You can learn more about the Center for Ethics and Culture by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast, which is released every other Thursday during the academic year, by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. 
we'd love your feedback. Contact the show by emailing cecpodcast at nd.edu. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to tell your friends. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Thank you.